Hello guys and a hearty welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that chooses each week some of the more obscure, forgotten and unfamiliar cases, both solved and unsolved ones, that the UK has to offer. I'm your host Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are of course you guys, and I thank you for joining me here this week as ever. It's super ace of you. New friends welcome, old friends welcome back. I trust everybody's well. Now, as I said recently on the show, we're right on the final furlong of episodes of the second series here, and the podcast is coming up to nearly a year old now. That's absolutely crazy, isn't it? I've had a ball since I started doing it. I really have. I've learned so much, and I've got to know so many great people through doing the show. Plus, I've been accepted into a great community. The true crime one, you can't fault it at all. Some of the best people ever. We even have a set of trading cards that we've come up with together. And if someone had said to me a year ago, your show that you're going to start doing will one day end up on the back of a trading card, I'd never have believed it. I'd never believed it would be as successful as it was. And it's down to you guys, so thanks very much. But I won't have too much of a break between series. It'll probably be just enough time for me to have a brew, and then I'll crack straight on with season three, I think. I enjoy doing the show far too much to be away for long. But as I'm sure everyone can appreciate, it's been a busy year and doing a show such as this, it does, it takes a hell of a lot of work and a couple of weeks to rest up and recharge, I think, I really do need, it's on the cards. So thanks very much again for all of your continued listens, reviews and shares of the show and your support, plus the very kind Patreon supporters, with a welcome to my latest patron, Sabrina Gavigan. Thanks very much, Sabrina. I hope that you enjoy the seven bonus episodes, with number eight out on the 1st of September, so it's not long to wait at all, is it? By the way, in my break between series, I will, of course, still release a Patreon episode on the 1st of the month. And the bonus episodes, as I say, there's number eight coming in just, well, it's probably there now, if depending on when you're listening. It can be yours too, all eight, can be yours too, for less than the price of a pint of Guinness each month. Now that's very reasonable, isn't it? The details of how you too can get access to these, should anyone be interested in supporting the show on Patreon, along with all the usual social media links, they'll be in the show notes this week, or you can just head over to Patreon and look up the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. You see the creepy hand going down the window. Boom, there you go, that's me. So the promo I've got this week is for Suspect Convictions, which is a US podcast produced by former newspaper reporter Scott Reader. Now I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this one, because the first season of it was a massive success last year. Apparently it was number two on iTunes, so that's pretty amazing, isn't it? And Scott can explain what the new season is about much better than I can in this promo, which I'm just about to play for you now. In 1990, newspaper reporter Scott Reeder found a nine-year-old girl's body abandoned in an Iowa school playground. I got to the school right when it was starting to get dark, and there was a police officer there, and the two of us walked over to where we could see a fire on the edge of the playground. We got about a foot from the flames and looked down and realized it was the body of a little girl that had been doused with gasoline and set on fire. The case has haunted him for 27 years. Did the police arrest and a jury convict the wrong person? 
In 2017, Scott Reeder and the national public radio affiliate WVIK launched the podcast Suspect Convictions to explore that question. Suspect Convictions soared to number two in the world on iTunes' overall chart and captured a top honor for investigative reporting from the Associated Press. The defendant, Stanley Liggins, who has been granted a new trial, will go to court beginning August 28th. And Suspect Convictions will cover every day of the trial and provide you with the testimony jurors will hear, as well as some information they won't. I ran a second test on a different type of test. It's called a peak of tension test. I listed seven different causes of death. Well, he nailed strangulation. He reacted to the strangulation because he knew that's how she died. So then I went over and told him, that's the guy. Well, then I was a hero. Suspect Convictions is a podcast unlike any other. It asks the tough questions others fear to raise. They talk to witnesses. I was brought out of my cell and told I needed to testify or else I'd be charged with accessory after the fact. They talk to past jurors. I've grown up with black people all my life, you know, in Africa, and most of them, you know, they they can be, um, I won't say threatening, but, but they do appear sometimes to be aggressive looking or, you know, uh, I don't want to sound like a racist or anything like that. They talk to lawyers. Don't be misled by dramatizations about circumstantial evidence. Evidence is evidence, and the jury is permitted and directed to give the weight that the evidence deserves. And they look at irregularities in the case. In one of the later post-conviction relief cases, it was determined that there were about 70 police reports that weren't turned over from the police department to the county attorney's office that had some exculpatory evidence. Suspect Convictions complies with the high reporting standards of National Public Radio. It will post daily episodes throughout the trial, as well as commentary and information that will never be heard in the courtroom. To subscribe, look for Suspect Convictions on whatever podcasting platform you use. So thanks to Scott there, Suspect Convictions, you can catch the daily episodes as the new trial is ongoing, which is right now apparently, and it's available from wherever you get your podcasts from. For this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the case featured is a heinous and callous one, and you'll meet one of the most despicable individuals that I've ever learned of. It takes place near the turn of the millennium in the town of Worthing in West Sussex, and I found the crime particularly angered me and it gnawed at me because, as it's one that targets one of the more vulnerable groups of society, the elderly, and I've made clear in the past on episodes what I think exactly of people who target the elderly. It was originally going to be this month's bonus Patreon episode, but as I was researching and writing it, it got longer and longer, and it ended up being a regular show episode, an example of the ever-chopping and changing fridge chalkboard that I have. Please be advised that this week's episode does contain descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so as ever, use your discretion please guys. With that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look back at a case I've entitled The Milknote Murder. The town of Worthing in the English county of West Sussex, which is 58 miles southeast of London, is a seaside resort immortalised by Oscar Wilde in his famous book The Importance of Being Earnest, 
Never read it myself. Don't know if it's any good or not. Worthing has for many years been a popular residential town, once favoured especially by people who used to be classed as persons of good position and family for retiring there. One such attractive area of the town is Worthing's own Poets' Corner area, with several residential streets and blocks named after some of the country's most celebrated poets and authors, and it was a house at number 9 Tennyson Road that was the home to one such resident, 87-year-old spinster Jean Barnes, who'd lived alone in the house for more than 50 years. On the evening of 26th of July 1999, Police received a telephone call from a neighbour of Miss Barnes's, Miss Hilda Wolven, who reported her concerns as to Jean's well-being. Hilda and Jean had been friends for several years, and as Hilda was only partially sighted, Jean used to read to her over the telephone. As both women lived alone, they checked on each other's well-being regularly, and had devised a coded method of telephoning using a sequence of rings, so each would know that it was the other calling. Hilda had been away visiting relatives for a number of days, and upon returning she'd contacted Jean to say that she was back, but Jean had failed to answer the telephone. When two days had passed with still no answer, Hilda had become worried that her friend was ill or had perhaps had an accident, so she'd contacted police and a police patrol was sent around to 9 Tennyson Road to investigate and check on Miss Barnes's welfare. Arriving at the house, which was a large but run-down and overgrown semi-detached property, police received no response to their repeated knocking at the front door. Eventually, it was decided to force entry to the house, and a window pane at the side of the house was broken, with officers releasing the sash and climbing through the window into the downstairs area. The scene before them was filled with ornaments, stacks of newspapers, bundles of clothing and broken appliances. It was like Steptoe's front room, which is a very polite way of saying that someone was a hoarder and they lived in near squalor. Yet for as much mess and clutter that there was, there was also apparent throughout the property many items of clear value. But immediately more apparent to police was the unpleasant and unmistakable smell that hung through the air. It wasn't just the must in the place, This was something else, something familiar. Tracing the source to a downstairs room, the smell grew stronger when one of the officers, WPC Sarah Loveland, opened the door into what turned out to be a ground floor bedroom. Entering the room, it was soon apparent why. Because lying on the bedroom floor, partially covered by a blanket, was the decomposing body of an elderly woman. Where the blanket covered the lower part of the fully clothed body, a pink flannel dressing gown covered the upper half, and a single slipper remained on her right foot, while the left slipper lay upright against the bed. The adjacent wall to where the body lay was covered with blood spatter up to a height of 18 inches, and carefully lifting the dressing gown, police could see that the woman had severe and obvious head injuries, although caused by what was unclear. She'd also clearly been dead for some time. WPC Loveland replaced the dressing gown and went back along the hallway to let a colleague in through the front door, first having to move a chair that had been placed in front of the front door, apparently so that the householder wouldn't have to bend down to pick up any mail and newspapers that were coming through the door. 
The police at the scene then requested assistance and a scene of crime team to attend. The body was of course identified as being that of the householder, Jean Helena Barnes, and a murder investigation codenamed Operation School was immediately launched, led by Detective Superintendent Steve Scott of West Sussex Police. Senior crime officers descended upon 9 Tennyson Road and began an examination of the interior and exterior of the property, whilst the body was removed from the scene and a post-mortem was carried out later that day by Home Office pathologist Dr Vesna Jurovic. His findings were that Miss Barnes had been killed as a result of multiple skull fractures caused by 9-10 to 10 blows to the head with a blunt instrument, although he couldn't determine what the instrument was. There were no other wounds found on or in the body, and no signs of restraint or any sexual assault or interference. From the blood splashes found on the bedroom wall, which were found to be directionally upward, indications were that the blows had been delivered whilst Miss Barnes lay on the floor where she was found. Who can do something like that to a defenceless elderly lady? It's just awful, isn't it? I think that's horrific. Following the results of the post-mortem, murder squad detectives began to piece together what was known about the dead woman. Miss Barnes had no close living family, with her only sister having died some years previously, but she did have a nephew who lived relatively nearby that she saw periodically, and a godson who lived in Iceland. She was one of the earliest female Cambridge graduates, speaking no less than six languages and she'd been engaged to be married many years before, but her fiancé had been killed in the Second World War. Ever since then, she'd never had another relationship, instead throwing herself into a career in the civil service, where she'd worked as a translator and interpreter for the Foreign Office and other government departments up until retiring in 1972. Although she had a handful of friends and neighbours who helped her with occasional things such as shopping and assisting with the upkeep of the sizeable property, she was reclusive and introverted by nature, and for more than 50 years, this is how Miss Barnes had lived. At age 87, she was still alone in the oversized and neglected house which she'd inherited from her parents, preferring to do things by herself such as growing roses for recreation listening to classical music on one of several cassette tapes that she had, and each day habitually completing the Times crossword in the paper that she'd have delivered, which she would then keep. Fair play to her for completing that, because it's proper tricky, the Times crossword, isn't it? After her death, copies of the Times dating back as far as the 1920s were found in the house. So you get an idea of the kind of extent of the hoarder that Miss Barnes was. She didn't entertain any visitors, indeed. Her contact with Hilda across the road was limited to conversations over the telephone, and she preferred to receive items such as a loaf of bread and a pint of milk to be left on her doorstep, with an account set up and a cheque left for payment on the doorstep once a month. On the rare occasions that Miss Barnes did venture out to the shops herself, she was a familiar figure in the Worthing area, always recognisable in the woollen bobble hat and tightly fastened tweed coat that she wore summer and winter. Yet these trips out were very few and far between, and it was commonplace for nobody to see Miss Barnes for two to three weeks at a time. So the first thing police had to work out was how long had she actually been dead. 
Dr. Jurovic told that it was difficult to confirm exactly how long she'd been dead because although it was warm outside, the cool temperature in the house had delayed decomposition somewhat. It was his opinion, though, that Miss Barnes may have been dead for at least between two to five days, possibly longer. As the body had been invaded by the rare scuttlefly, Dr. Zachariah Erzinkloglu, a retired entomologist who'd specialised in working with the police over his career, was brought in to study the fly stage of development. By working this out, because the body would have become receptive to the fly's presence just a short time after death, it was hoped that this would be useful in estimating exactly just how long she'd been dead. Other factors suggested that it was up to a period of about two weeks. Jean was known to have spoken to a friend on the telephone on the 10th of July. A Radio Times television magazine was found to be turned to the page for programmes broadcasting on the 12th of July and a neighbour across the road believed that she'd seen Jean mowing her front lawn on a date around the 15th of July. But when the entomologist's report was received, it gave the scientific opinion that due to the fly development, that she'd lain dead for at least 10 days, possibly as long as two full weeks before she was found, making it most likely that Jean had died on the 12th or shortly afterwards. That's very sad, isn't it, eh? Some poor old person can lie dead for with nobody missing them more and that's really bad very very sad the investigation discovered from the off that there was no sign of forced entry to the property and it was possible that miss barnes had either known a killer or a killer had bluffed their way into the house by posing as an official of some kind yet this was thought to be unlikely because although she was advanced in years and frail her faculties were as sharp as a tack, and she was very security conscious. Only a few months previously, she'd had the locks changed to a house after reporting a burglary in January that year, where she'd had paintings and a barometer stolen. This burglary wasn't the only time Miss Barnes had contacted police to report incidents, however. In February 1999, she reported being attacked on her doorstep one morning at about 3.45am while she was putting her milk bottles out, although she was unhurt and just had her spectacles broken. Then in April that year, she'd reported to police receiving a strange telephone call from a man posing as an employee from her bank, asking her personal details, which, although she was uneasy about, she'd given him. She spoke to the bank following this call and they assured her that they hadn't contacted her. And then the following month, both an Alliance and Leicester credit card and a Barclay card arrived that she hadn't ordered from an account that she hadn't opened. So she again reported this to police. She cut up the card and closed the account without using it. Paperwork and the cut-up card were found later in the house. Following this incident, Miss Barnes had her locks changed for a second time. Now things like this really do anger me. As I've said, I hate seeing scum who prey on the elderly and get them on the phone, smooth-talking them, being persuasive, and they eventually end up flummoxing them, don't they, into signing up for things that cost them the earth or soliciting information to use for profit at their cost. I think it's absolutely despicable and shameful to take advantage of vulnerable people like that. Because if you don't see anyone, how can you make enemies? It was soon believed that the likely motive was as part of a robbery gone wrong. 
and this was thought to be so because Miss Barnes was an attractive target for any robber. Although the house was squalid, there were many valuable items amongst the clutter of the three-storey house. So many that it was to take four senior crime officers two full months in residence at the house, combing each room in fine detail, just to log more than 2,300 exhibits. There were several valuable items of furniture, paintings, antiques, silverware in the house, and where some rooms showed signs of being ransacked, with drawers being emptied all over the floors and bed, other rooms seemed to be absolutely untouched. There were patches on the walls and carpet that suggested that pictures and items of furniture had recently been removed from the scene, and marks in the dust where an ornament had clearly stood until recently. Yet several other valuable antiques and items of family silverware, which alone were estimated to be worth in the region of fifteen to twenty thousand pounds, they still remained there. Documents were also found that showed that Miss Barnes had various investments and savings to her name, including £87,000 worth of national savings, for which the certificates were missing. When all property, items and bonds were added together, it became clear that Jean Barnes was worth around in the region of half a million pounds, which he'd built up over a lifetime. So robbery, obviously, is a crystal clear motive there, isn't it? But what was the need to have her killed? Did she know a killer, and was this to silence her? In the early days of the inquiry, about 200 officers were involved, carrying out detailed house-to-house inquiries in the area, but due to Jean's reclusive nature, investigators were faced with an extra difficult task. It had been work enough to pinpoint exactly how long she'd been laying dead at the scene, so any witnesses coming forward to say they'd seen, for example, her being followed home by a wrong'un just weren't going to happen. Nor was it likely to find anyone saying that they'd seen someone breaking into the property. At the time, a screen of trees shielded the house from view from the road, and the garden was so overgrown that at one time the post office had actually threatened to suspend deliveries there because it was so inaccessible. Miss Barnes had taken steps to change this, and she'd employed the services of a part-time gardener, who was of course interviewed and eliminated as a suspect. Yet house-to-house inquiries did produce sightings of people who were to become promising persons of interest to the investigation. Reports of a stocky elderly woman who'd been seen knocking on Miss Barnes's door shortly before the murder came in, a white dreadlock girl was seen loitering in the road shortly before, and two men seen near the house the day before the murder were discovered carrying a heavy-looking box, one of them in his 50s and the other one much younger in his mid to late 20s. The identity of these people were never ascertained, however. But another person of interest to the investigation as a result of these house-to-house inquiries was identified, and this was thanks to a very short appeal on good old Crime Watch UK, a useful show that for many years was on on the BBC that helped to catch killers and crooks, but was cancelled to cost-save in view of keeping all the reality bollocks and absolute guff on that makes up TV schedules on there today. Now, I know I go on about Crime Watch quite a lot here on the show, and I do just want to reiterate, I don't sit at home heartbroken because it's not on anymore. I'm not obsessed with it or anything. I do think it's a shame because it was so useful a concept 
Plus, I like to have a dig about the state of TV today as much as I can. Which really is dreadful, isn't it? Come on. I mean, shit on like Love Island. Christ almighty. What depths do you sink to next? So when it was still on, of course, the September 1999 edition of Crime Watch had broadcast a short appeal about Jean's murder. It had briefly listed the known facts and persons of interest, but it had also included a description of a man who'd been seen in the Tennyson Road area in the days leading up to the murder, coming out with a story to people about how his car had broken down and attempting to gain £15 from them to be able to get back home to the nearby town of Rye. The appeal was only short and it generated only a few calls, but after seeing this on Crime Watch, one of the calls was from the guy himself. He actually came forward to police himself, obviously spooked into it when he started talking about connections with murder and throwing them into the mix. He claimed he'd used this form of deception before to gain money from people, but he denied having anything to do with the murder. He was eventually cleared of any involvement, but was instead prosecuted for multiple counts of deception. Crime Watch would again later play a part in the case with different evidence to present, but I'm jumping myself a bit there. In September 1999, an emotional funeral service was held for Jean Barnes at Worthing Crematorium, with a 30-strong congregation in a sombre mood. Some burst into tears as tribute was paid to Jean by the Reverend Gary Guinness at the ceremony. Detectives did offer comforting words to her nephew Jeremy Wynne, who sadly was the only relative of Jean's to attend, and afterwards they promised to keep him informed of developments in the investigation. The most promising development in the investigation had come when the local milkman who delivered to Jean's house came forward shortly after the body was discovered and handed police a note that he said had been left on Miss Barnes's doorstep for him over a week earlier. The note had been written on the torn-off back of an envelope and it read as follows. Dear Milkman, I'm sorry but I'm going into hospital on Monday the 26th of July. Then I will be going into a nursing home. Therefore, please, could you leave me the bill after Friday the 23rd and a loaf today? Thank you for your kindness. So the milkman had complied with this for the Friday, and he was later to find a cheque for the required amount on the doorstep. Police suspicions were immediately aroused by this note, because no one who knew Miss Barnes knew anything about any operation or any plans to enter a nursing home and inquiries at all local hospitals and nursing homes confirm this to be completely false. So either Miss Barnes was cancelling her milk from beyond the grave, or someone else was at the house coming and going, and had forged the note to the milkman. This seemed likely, because a British gas engineer who'd knocked on the door five days before the body was found got no answer, but had clearly heard the television or the radio on inside the house. It wasn't on when the body was found. The milkman who had passed the note to police, John Burroughs, was for a time suspected of being the killer and he was actually arrested when he refused to provide a handwriting sample for comparison against the note which he'd handed in to police. He was eventually cleared of all involvement in the murder, helped when the corresponding front of the envelope that the note was written on was found inside Miss Barnes's squalid kitchen. And why would he have forged the letter anyway, and then took it into police? 
So to ascertain that this note was a forgery, several samples of handwriting confirmed to belong to Miss Barnes were gathered and sent for comparison along with the note left for the milkman to the Forensic Science Services in London. A check of Miss Barnes's bank activity also revealed two suspicious checks, one to the Co-op Dairy and one to Seaboard Electricity Suppliers, both dated the 19th of July and received by the bank. The bank had also had in their possession two handwritten application forms that they still had in their files that had been received, purporting to be from Miss Barnes, the ones that had led to her being sent the unrequested cash and credit cards some months previously. Each form, when it was examined, turned out to contain several mistakes, such as the incorrect spelling of Miss Barnes's middle name of Helena and giving her mother's maiden name incorrectly as Jenkins and all of these documents were sent along to the Forensic Science Services for comparison. Just over a month later, the results came back. After careful and detailed comparison, not one of the documents compared against Miss Barnes's confirmed handwriting was found to be a match for hers. Each one was a forgery. But the comparison did conclude that the handwriting was from the same person. They couldn't commit themselves as to the gender of the author, but they could estimate from the style and formation of the handwriting that it was likely to be a person aged in their 50s or 60s, and one who'd not bothered to make a determined attempt to disguise their own handwriting. It now looked certain that this just wasn't an opportunistic robbery. Someone had coldly managed to obtain and plotted using this elderly lady's personal details to get access to her money, and had eventually killed her in cold blood. But perhaps most callous of all, her killer had then tried to conceal her death and make out that she was still alive, to allow the killer to be able to continue to return to the house to plunder as much property and valuables as possible over a period of time, whilst her body lay downstairs in the bedroom. What kind of pit of hell does someone like that come from? Trying to get an insight into the mind of such a callous killer, Detective Superintendent Scott decided to call on the services of a criminal profiler, Dr Julian Boone, who is a lecturer at Leicester University, and one we met actually in the second episode of this series of the show, in the Blackmail, Brutality and Baby Food episode. Dr Boone had had an initial meeting with the investigative team in September 1999, where after he'd heard an outline of the case from the officers, he gave them some preliminary observations of his that focused upon two main aspects, that the crime was overall well planned and that it had been executed both calmly and methodically. But it wasn't until early November 1999 that he was able to make it down to the incident room of Operation School at Worthing for the purposes of a more thorough and detailed briefing, plus to get the chance to make a visit to the scene of the crime. At the briefing, Dr Boone listened carefully as the officers ranged from one aspect of the inquiry to another, but at the end of the meeting confined himself to just two preliminary remarks. Whoever had killed Jean Barnes had done it quickly and efficiently without anger, enjoyment or any personal malice. It was simply part of a carefully worked out strategy, and the second was that there may be more than one person involved. He was then taken to number 9 Tennyson Road to have a look around the property, which by that time, scenes of crime officers had long since finished cataloguing the contents of the house. 
As the investigation was still running, it was still declared a crime scene and had been left exactly as it was discovered. Downstairs it was noted that the chair had been manoeuvred back into place under the letterbox, again thought to make things appear normal to any post or newspaper deliveries. The times for the day of the discovery of Miss Barnes's body was still on the chair, but earlier copies had been added to the pile on the stairs, which was the main indicator that someone had been coming and going for a number of days. The newspapers were not in sequential order, but were rather mixed up, and this indicated to Dr Boone that the killer may have returned to the scene only every few days rather than each day. A set of keys to the property were found to be missing, and it was thought that the killer had retained these and had been using the side door of the house to come and go. Because of the relative squalor of the house, though, little usable fingerprint evidence had been found. Of the ones that were discovered, there were none that could not be eliminated from the inquiry. But nevertheless, some forensic traces had been discovered at the scene. The search team had found a tissue in a downstairs room next to the ground floor spare bedroom where the body of Jean Barnes had been found. It bore a few specks of a microscopic and unknown substance that was later found to be human blood, and further to this, traces of Jean Barnes's blood had been found in the sink in the downstairs bathroom of the house. Had her killer washed his hands there, or was her blood there for a legitimate reason? The blood on the tissue was tested against her blood, and was found to be a negative match. A search on the National DNA database for a match with the blood also proved negative. Profiling the killer, Dr Boone agreed immediately with investigators' theories that this had not been a crime committed by a drug addict to fund a drug habit. The crime was too orderly, a drug addict's behaviour was thought to be much more disorganised and chaotic. It was a crime committed by a methodical person purely motivated by greed. There was no evidence of Jean having been tortured, there were no signs of any gagging or restraint at all apparent, and likely she'd only been killed purely because she got in the way of gain. The killer was likely to have certainly known of Miss Barnes, even if they didn't know her personally, and would have likely visited the house for some reason at some point previously, although she may not have known him in any way. He may not have killed before, but this certainly was unlikely to be a one-off attempt against this chosen victim type. It was likely to be a male offender, the levels of violence leaned towards this, and one who was likely to be mature in years. He'd be intelligent but unsuccessful. I mean, this isn't the kind of thing that a rocket scientist with a lovely big house does, is it? This was someone who was experienced and more than capable of understanding finance, and one who was able to work out a complex plan of deception and have the patience to see it out in stages. The person capable of such an act would likely have a previous criminal history. This was far too well executed to be a first offence. The history may have involved theft, forgery, deception or burglary offences. Although there had been violence at the scene, of course, it wasn't dwelt upon or extended violence. It was just carried out as a necessity and no thought was given to it afterwards. It was over just as soon as it had been accomplished, with the only thought given about it was to place a dressing gown over the head. No more was thought about it. But the efficient and ruthless nature of this, plus the no compunction given to it afterwards, indicated that the killer was a psychopath. 
Armed with these pointers, Detective Chief Superintendent Scott decided to once again approach Crime Watch UK. As I said before, an appeal concerning Jean's murder had been featured on the programme in the September 1999 broadcast, and this brief appeal had led to Raymond Price, who was the man responsible for deceptions claiming money to get home to Rye, it led to him coming forward and being charged. By November, the forged documents had become one of the most strongest promising lines of inquiry, and Detective Superintendent Scott was angling for another appearance on TV, so that the handwriting could be publicised in the hope that someone watching would either recognise it, or possibly may recall a similar case of an elderly person being targeted in a similar way to Miss Barnes. A new appearance and appeal were agreed, and on the 16th of November 1999, Detective Superintendent Scott travelled up to BBC TV Centre in West London with two senior members of the investigative team, Detective Inspectors Sally Simmons and Martin Underhill. A reconstruction of what was known about the crime had been made, plus an insight into Miss Barnes's life and history had been created, helping to see her more of a person and identify with her, and at 9pm that evening, the show went out live. During the appeal, the presenter of Crime Watch, Nick Ross, who, trust me, has the best voice ever for scaring the living piss out of you when you're a youngster, by his narration, pointed out the salient characteristics of the forged documents, which had been blown up and displayed on a screen. He pointed out such details as the letter G in the forgeries not having a tail, whereas the letter Y did the unusual habit of putting a colon between numbers on the forged checks, the mix of upper and lowercase letters, and the use of an ampersand that looked like a lowercase letter E. The appeal pressed home all of these characteristics, and asked anyone watching at home who'd either fallen victim to a crime with the same modus operandi, a burglary followed by a bogus telephone call, and the unexpected opening of new bank accounts, or who knew of someone who had, to get in touch. Hopefully someone watching could put these together and call in with information that may lead police on the trail of a suspect. It was also emphasised that the reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer of Jean Barnes had now increased to £30,000, half being put up by police and half by the relative of Miss Barnes, her nephew Jeremy. Because the programme had been trailered early in the evening on local TV stations, Local news bulletins had featured the case's inclusion as a lead story on the early evening news, and as a result the incident room for Operation School at Burgess Hill Police Station had begun receiving calls from people even before the Crime Watch programme had aired. Now this was a massive boost for the investigative team, whose morale had been flagging a bit somewhat, and they were left hopeful that this was a good omen and the Crime Watch appeal would bring them fresh and worthwhile information which would rejuvenate the investigation. Sure enough, the renewed appeal had provided a reassuring response, as the Crime Watch reconstruction generated in the region of 250 calls. Many suggested possible linked cases, giving details of elderly relatives or neighbours who'd been the victim of forged notes or deception. Sadly, the elderly as vulnerable members of society are always likely to fall victim to scumbags who try to fleece them out of money, I mean, how many times have you heard tales of rogue traders conning some poor old grandma out of all the money that she has over unnecessary repairs to the roof or stuff like that? Many, many years ago, 
My own nana fell victim to someone who fleeced her out of some money over the sale of her cabinet that she had. I'm going back now, before I was born actually. But the guy was found and not only did she get her money back, but he got a proper kicking from some members of my family as well. I'm not even sure that the police got to know about the full thing. Something to be said for the death wish kind of justice sometimes, isn't there? So the day following the Crime Watch appeal, Detective Superintendent Scott was sifting through the information received as a result of the viewers' calls, when two calls in particular jumped out. Firstly, they'd received a report concerning a man named Gerald Black, who'd lived in Flat 2 of Byron Court in Worthing's Byron Road, and had died in November 1998, apparently of natural causes. Where police were especially interested was that, like in the Gene Barnes murder, someone had gone to great lengths to create the impression that Gerald was still alive after his death. Somebody had made an application for a cash point card in his name and had used it after his death, lights had periodically been turned on and off in the property, and someone, apparently, had also filled his bin with rubbish over time to give the impression that he was still alive. Now while this was important, because it had similar overtones to Jean's murder, it was nearby and so suggested that the offender had done this previously, the next call was to prove even more interesting. A viewer called Audrey Ridpath, who was another elderly resident of Worthing, had watched the programme, and the Jean Barnes appeal had triggered a memory for her. Just three years previously, in 1996, one day in the summer Audrey had been walking a dog Poppy along the beach, and had fallen into conversation with another dog walker, a short middle-aged woman. The two walked together while the dogs played, and during the course of their conversation, Audrey had happened to mention that she needed some general odd jobs done around her house. A new companion had leapt in to suggest her husband's services, to which Audrey agreed, and in due course the woman's husband, a man in his fifties named David Munley, turned up at Audrey's house in Worthing St George's Road. Over time he'd done several jobs such as painting, putting up shelves and repairing the balcony, and Mrs Ridpath was so impressed with his work that she'd recommended him to her next-door neighbour, Winifred Smith, who was an infirm woman of 93, who also needed several odd jobs doing. Before long, Munley, who was a scruffy, small, grey-haired man, he'd been working at Winifred Smith's house, where he periodically did odd jobs and building work for her over a period of six months. Over this time, Winifred Smith had paid him for various building materials that he'd required, although she hadn't kept any record of how much she'd paid over time. Audrey Ridpath actually kept Mrs Smith's books for her, and she soon, when bookkeeping, noticed that someone had taken cheques from different parts of Mrs Smith's checkbook and had cashed them to the tune of some £4,000 in total. When Mrs Smith had gone to the bank to query these transactions, she was shown a letter that supposedly had been written by her saying that she was going into a nursing home and was authorising her nephew, one David Armstrong, to take charge of her financial affairs and estate. The account was closed and the transactions refunded, thankfully, and she claimed no such thing and that this letter was a complete forgery. But there was no substantial further investigation into the matter and no one was ever prosecuted. Three years later, Mrs Ridpath was convinced after seeing the handwriting highlighted on screen on Crime Watch, 
with its distinctive letter G's and Y's, that it was a match to handwriting on the invoice David Munley had given her for work that he'd done for her three years before. An organised record keeper, she still had the invoice, and as a compulsive diary keeper, she still had the diaries that contained notes of the dates of the events that she described to police. With the similarities of forged letters and cheques, applications for cash cards, plus the crucial wording of going into a nursing home, in the same town, this was felt to be information of the highest order, and the morning after the Crime Watch programme had aired, police went around to interview her and take possession of the invoice and diaries that she'd mentioned for comparisons to the forgeries in the Jean Barnes case. When police looked at the two samples, even to the untrained eye, the similarities between the handwriting on both sets of documents was remarkable, and when a check through the criminal record system showed that David Munley did indeed have a previous criminal conviction for fraud in 1983, he went right to the top of the suspect list. Inquiries about Munley revealed that he hailed from Northumberland originally, and was 56 years old, fitting the mature age of the offender as had been profiled. He'd been separated from his wife since 1985, and was living with a woman who was at first believed to be his mother in a flat in Byron Court, Byron Road, flat number 3. Flat number 3, right next door to the flat where Gerald Black had lived before he died the previous year, and just 250 yards from Miss Barnes's house in Tennyson Road. Munley had been a promising sportsman in his youth, but a severe knee injury had put pay to his athletic career, which at the time looked as though he could have been a professional footballer. Instead, following the injury, he'd begun working at a job fireproofing buildings. He'd done this between 1984 and 1991 until his employers had entered receivership and when they did so he bought the fire protection division from them and went into business with it himself. He was a poor businessman though and the business folded shortly afterwards with debts of more than £18,000 forcing Munley to sell his house. This had led to separation from his wife and to support himself he began to do occasional building or gardening jobs supplemented with dealing in antiques. But he hadn't managed to build himself back up and was still suffering from financial struggles. A cheque revealed that he had no less than 12 county court orders for debt currently against him. So he was already top of the suspect list when the report from handwriting experts had come back to police following their examination of Munley's handwriting. And the comparison with the forged documents in the opinion of the experts, there were a number of similarities between the new samples and the documents from the Barnes inquiry that couldn't be ignored. The probability was that each had been written by the same person. And harder scientific evidence would soon emerge too. Munley's fingerprints were still in the criminal record system from his 1983 conviction, and they proved to be a match for prints found on the letter that Mrs Smith's bank had received from David Armstrong. As for the bank card that had been obtained in the name of the late Gerald Black and used, police retrieved an image from CCTV covering the cash point where the card had been used from the time that it had been used. The person on the image was thought to be Munley. It was of a person similar in appearance and build, but the features were distorted by the camera angle. 
a freeze frame of the best possible image was ultimately examined alongside a photograph of Munley by a facial mapping expert who concluded that there was a match and Munley was the man on the CCTV still. So a strategy was now put together for the best, most effective way to arrest Munley. It's easy to think that you should just barge in all gung-ho and bust his ass, but all the evidence to put to him once that's been done has to be checked, double-checked, and put together so you can say to him in interview, right, I've got this to hit you with, I've got that to hit you with, how do you explain this, how do you explain that, etc, etc. Police were by now convinced that they had the killer, and so while a team of officers watched the suspect around the clock to ensure that he didn't do a runner spooked by seeing his handwriting on Crime Watch, another team processed all of the evidence that they'd gained, and once they were ready to proceed with interviews with him, at 7am on the 2nd of December 1999, David Munley was arrested at his home, flat number 3, Byron Court. It was a large operation involving multiple teams of officers, one to arrest Munley and the woman suspected his mother and take them both to separate police stations for questioning, and the other team to remain at the flat, sealing it off and its immediate surroundings as a potential crime scene to begin an intensive search for evidence. Within ten minutes of police arriving, Munley was in handcuffs in a police van on his way to Crawley Police Station, whilst his mother who actually turned out to be his ex-wife Judith, who was some 18 years older than Munley and with whom he was back staying, was taken to the local station in Worthing. Upon his arrival at Crawley, Munley was escorted into the custody suite and his clothing was taken from him, with him being given the standard white paper zip suit to wear. He complained of having a severe headache, and a police doctor who examined him gave him some coproximal tablets and suspended all interviews for a period of three hours so he could sleep. Police suspected that this was actually a ruse to allow himself time to think. Judith Munley was, however, the polar opposite. She was cooperative from the off, and when it was put to her that Munley was responsible for a number of serious offences, the least of which was deception, and that it was suspected that she was also involved, she told police that she not only suspected Munley was more than capable of doing so, but that she was convinced that he was defrauding even her, as well as others. Sometime before, after worming his way back into her good graces, Munley had persuaded her to let him take over her finances, and shortly afterwards, her checkbook went missing, and her bank contacted to say that her account had become overdrawn. Through further moaning about headaches and other bureaucracy, it was to be 5pm that evening when interviewing officers finally managed to get down to speaking to David Munley, and at first he was amiable. He'd crack jokes and try to engage officers in light-hearted banter during questioning, and he would happily answer the most basic and least searching questions. But as officers began to press him further about the most pressing inquiry, the murder of Jean Barnes, Munley became stiffer and much less responsive, and he would deny everything. He couldn't explain how his fingerprints and handwriting came to be on incriminating documents. He didn't know, or had never met Miss Barnes, or he'd never set foot in her house, and he categorically denied having any involvement whatsoever in the murder. It was likely going to be a long haul in the interviews with him clamming up like this. And then, during a break in the interviews, the search team back at Byron Court struck gold. 
The search of Munley's flat had revealed items such as bank statements and pawn shop tickets, but no documents had been found with his all-important handwriting on. Now, this would be unusual in a home, wouldn't it? Imagine having nothing in your house without your writing on. How unlikely is that? And the search team suspected that perhaps Munley had seen the Crime Watch broadcast, realised just how important handwriting would be if police were to come knocking on his door, and had made sure that there was nothing lying about that had been written by him to incriminate him. As the day progressed, the search had moved into the communal areas of the Byron Court block, and this was permissible because the search warrant covered the entire house. At the foot of the communal staircase was a large utility meter and storage cupboard, inside which was found an assortment of items belonging to various other tenants, including a large suitcase. This suitcase was found to contain a large number of personal effects belonging to David Munley, including his birth certificate and several diaries of his. Police now had copious amounts of his handwriting to use for further comparisons. Removing the suitcase from the cupboard, it caught on a loose floorboard where it had been lying, and when search team officers lifted the floorboard, they discovered several cigarette butts, a broken green and mauve candlestick, and a civil service membership card. The card had belonged to Jean Barnes. The cigarette butts were later tested and a DNA profile was obtained from them that was found to match David Munley. There was more crucial evidence found in the flat itself. The search team managed to produce an itemised telephone bill belonging to Munley, which indicated that at 15.24pm on the 23rd of April 1999, the telephone in his flat had made a 7 minute 37 second telephone call to Miss Barnes's number. It was almost certainly the telephone call that she'd received, supposedly from a bank, asking for details about herself. Meanwhile, as this evidence was being found and before it was put to him, during interview Munley was already beginning to incriminate himself. He denied involvement in making any false applications for credit or cash cards involving Miss Barnes and Mrs Smith, yet he refused to give fresh samples of his own handwriting. Although admitting to knowing him, and having helped him out in the past with various things when he was ill, Munley also denied obtaining and using a cash card in the name of the late Gerald Black, yet was unaware that police had established his culpability by using facial mapping, and could only deny when CCTV stills were put to him. It was decided to wind up interviews for the day, and an extension of 24-hour custody for Munley was applied for and was granted. After work throughout the night by the investigating team, who processed the new evidence discovered at Byron Court that day to get it ready to put to Munley at interview, the following day the interviews continued. Munley's approach had completely changed by this time. All cooperation and amiableness were gone here, and for each item of evidence put to him, he made the same answer like a broken record. I refer you to the answer I made earlier. Police challenged him on no less than 26 different points in all, each time asking him, how can that be? And to any of the questions or points put to him, Munley was unable to give satisfactory answers. He couldn't explain the handwriting evidence, the fingerprints, or the telephone call made to Miss Barnes, nor could he account for the reason Jean Barnes' civil service card was hidden under a floorboard in the utility cupboard of the block of flats where he lived. 
after five and a half hours of interviews, on the 4th of December 1999, David Munley was formally charged with the murder of Jean Barnes and was remanded in custody at Crawley Magistrates Court to await trial. Before the trial date, further items of evidence that pointed the finger of suspicion at David Munley came to light. Firstly, a shoe print found on Lino in the home of Jean Barnes was found to match a pair of Marks and Spencer shoes that belonged to Munley. And secondly, but much more conclusively, the tissue that had been discovered on the floor next to the room where Jean Barnes was found had been found to contain minute flecks of human blood, as we said. After a comparison with the sample that he'd routinely given after his arrest, the DNA from the blood flecks was found to be a perfect match for that of David Munley. David Munley's trial began at Lewes Crown Court on the 14th of November 2000, where he entered a plea of not guilty to the murder of Jean Barnes, eight counts of burglary and six counts of forgery that he was subsequently charged with. Police had nearly 900 witness statements, plus a plethora of forensic evidence, handwriting comparisons and DNA evidence, and over the next two weeks the entire prosecution case, led by Jeremy Gompertz QC, was presented through nearly 80 different witnesses, from the initial officers who discovered the body, right through the investigating team, and onto forensic specialists who each gave evidence as to what they'd found to suggest Munley's capability the DNA, the handwriting, the facial mapping, and so on. The prosecution witnesses also included several antiques dealers who'd come forward following press and TV coverage of Munley's arrest and charge. One by one, they told the court how he had, on several occasions, both before and after Miss Barnes's death, sold them valuable pieces that he claimed were property of a deceased aunt, but really belonged to Miss Barnes. Many items bore labels with a mother's maiden name of Ricketts on from 1931 and were eventually recovered from places as nearby as Leicester and as far afield as mainland Europe. They told the court that Munley had given them a plausible story about a house he'd been left by a deceased aunt of his that was filled with valuable antiques and furniture, all of it hers that would eventually be for sale once he'd sorted out her estate. Munley elaborated to others that the house was in Norfolk or Suffolk, depending on which antiques dealer he'd been given the story to, and it was next to a church that had been occupied by his aunt and uncle, who were both missionaries. Upon their death, the house had been left to the church, and the contents split between Munley and his brother. When each dealer offered to make the trip to view and value the contents of the house in situ, Munley had resisted these offers by claiming that his brother had not yet decided on which of the few pieces that he wanted. He'd sold several pieces to dealers, and many of them turned up in court as evidence, brought there by dealers, with a reputation to protect and a sense of decency. Each piece was further evidence against Munley, as bit by bit the identifying marks and labels that matched other items still on Tennyson Road appeared. The defence called only one witness, David Munley himself. He took the witness stand and went on to deny the charges against him. He did admit to forging the letter to Mrs Smith's bank and three of her cheques, offences which he wasn't actually being tried for, but which harmed his defence anyway, but everything else either denied or could not explain. 
He under oath claimed to not know Miss Barnes and to have never entered her house. He claimed that any DNA evidence from him found at the scene must have been planted by police and that shoe marks like his own would leave could have come from any of the 20,000 pairs sold by Marks and Spencers. He denied having lifted the floorboard in the meter cupboard at his home and hidden items there and he claimed that cigarette butts found with his saliva on must have been swept in there by the cleaner. And bit by bit, he was shown to be the liar that he was to the jury. The antique dealers who brought in items that Munley had sold to them belonging to Jean Barnes, some five dealers in Worthing, brought in proof that items had been sold to them in September 1998. He'd been systematically stealing from Jean Barnes for ten months yet he claimed that he'd never met her or even known her. Munley had a small Jack Russell dog named J.R. that he walked each day in Worthing's Amelia Park, which was only a short distance away from Byron Road, but to get there one had to traverse along the adjacent road to the park, Tennyson Road. It was known that only a few years before, Jean Barnes herself had had a small dog and was in the habit of talking to dog walkers when she went out and it was suggested that Munley had got to know her as a result of this and had learned of her situation. He then made the pretense of befriending her, whilst all the while plotting to steal from her. He'd managed to obtain keys to the property and had begun to do this at least almost a year before she was murdered, perhaps longer, most likely on one of the rare occasions that she went out or perhaps even when she was asleep upstairs. Perhaps she discovered him doing this one day in July 1999 and that was the reason for her death, to protect his cash cow. On the 6th of December 2000, the 17th day of the trial, the jury of nine women and three men retired to consider their verdict. Twice they were to come back into the court with queries and requests, but by 3.15pm that day they reassembled in the court. When asked if they'd reached a verdict on the murder charge, the forewoman of the jury replied that they had a verdict of guilty. Munley closed his eyes and put his face in his hands and then stared at the floor as guilty verdicts were read out on all six forgery charges and seven of the eight burglary charges. Sentencing him to life imprisonment, Mr Justice Alliot told Munley I am prepared to accept that this was not in any way a premeditated murder. It was committed by you in some confrontation with the elderly lady, but the callousness in letting her lie as she fell and your depredation was beyond belief. You have shown no acceptance of guilt and not a flicker of remorse. Munley also received five-year concurrent sentences for each burglary, plus four years concurrent for each count of forgery. He had admitted four offences relating to forging cheques and they were allowed to lie on the file. Mr Justice Elliot paid special commendation to Audrey Ridpath for contacting Crime Watch. It was undoubtedly the piece of information that proved key to cracking the case. On the 13th of March 2001, the 82-year-old received a reward and promptly donated a large sum of it to a Rwandan orphanage. Following the verdict, Miss Barnes's sole relative, her nephew Jeremy Wynne, said, I feel nothing but contempt for this evil man. He is a swine. My aunt was a brilliant woman who led a very interesting life, and I hope he spends his time in jail realising what he's done in ending the life of a very fine woman in this way. 
and hopefully to this day, Munley still is. He did appeal against his conviction, and at a hearing nearly four years to the day after he was jailed for life, his appeal was denied at a closed hearing at the Court of Appeal in London. Quite rightly so too. I've made no bones on the regular show exactly what I think of the scum who target the elderly for crimes. And deception is callous enough. I mean, today old people are often left skint enough as it is without a scumbag lining their own pockets and taking the hard-earned savings. But to add murder to it out of pure greed, what a truly terrible crime. And a parasite like Munley is undoubtedly where he belongs. So what kind of monster? Yeah, let's not pull any punches here. Monster. Batters an old lady to death in her own home but then doesn't just rob her or continue to rob her, strings it out and plays on her reclusive nature by adopting a pretense that she's still alive in a subtle yet effective way, just so they can protect their own golden goose. It takes a seriously psychopathic individual to do that, to be able to disregard such a horrific murder and come and go back and to from the scene over a two-week period. Where is the place in society for a creature like that? I think the story painted in court that she caught him in the act led to a murder, unplanned but still carried out ruthlessly. And I also think the offences he was caught for are just the tip of the iceberg with him. We know Munley had committed fraud as early as 1983. Had he continued to offend over the years before his arrest? Undoubtedly. He had no remorse, no feelings of guilt. Why would he stop a source of easy money to him? I'd also definitely suggest the possibility that Munley may have committed other killings for greed, perhaps not always as savage as the murder of Jean Barnes, perhaps some that were not even recognised as murders at the time. A check of his movements over the years would be very worthwhile, I believe, to see if there's any cases that could possibly match up. But it's not in Munley's nature to bear his soul and confess all because he thinks of absolutely nobody but himself, and I would imagine charges so long after would be difficult if near impossible to bring in any cases. At least he's locked away today for his known crimes, advancing in years now too, and one day time will catch up with him too, and good riddance. So a pretty nasty and callous individual this week, I'm sure you'll agree, and it's little consolation, but at least Munley was brought to justice for his despicable crimes. I hope that you found this an entertaining episode. Please get in touch and let me know your thoughts. The thread goes up in the Facebook group a couple of hours after the episode is released. And I would, as always, like to hear your opinions about the case. When I started it, as I said, it was going to be the latest Patreon episode, but it spiralled into a regular episode of the show. And the next Patreon episode, which is still coming on the 1st of September has now been changed to a different case that if you aren't already beside yourself with excitement ready to hear it, then you can be for less than each month than the cost of a pint of Guinness, as I said. Just head on over to Patreon and look up the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there or check the links with the episode show notes, which conveniently hold my social media links should you want to get in touch or follow if you don't already. I shall be back next week with another case, the penultimate, penultimate one of the series. So if that's even a thing, well, it sounds pretty good to me anyway, so I'm saying it, and I hope that you can join me then. So until we do, I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you all safe times, and I look forward to speaking to you all soon. Cheers all, take care guys, and goodbye for now.